I'm going to assume, if you're like anyone else, that you've witnessed a lot of serious violence in your lifetime. Well, at least on screen. Violence is more prevalent than ever before on TV and film, as it is, of course, in real life. What does that mean for us as a society? How about our youth? That time when most of us were first exposed to these depictions of violence. You're now going to hear a group of young participants retell from memory one of the most violent film scenes they have ever watched and choose if they would play victim, perpetrator, or bystander in the scene, and why. These young people are participants of a film and violence project called Direct Approach, which was initiated by the Danish artist Steen Marie Jacobsen in 2012, and has since traveled to many places around the world as a contemporary anti-violence method. I'll explain to you how the method works after you've heard the participants' cinematic witness reports. During their retellings, there may be some graphic language, but keep in mind that the violence has been altered by their memories. And, as far as spoiler alerts, well, you won't know if they're spoiling the film, because the speakers haven't watched the original film scene again, so there's no guarantee that the scenes will be the same as the original film. Unraveling the memory of a film scene is like unraveling a scene from real life. A film scene recalled from memory invariably consists of different aspects, including the participant's own worldview and their personal identification with the characters involved. So, while all characters appearing in this work are fictitious, any resemblance to real persons, living or dead, is no longer coincidental. Memory is filtered through subjective interpretation, and intrinsically we experience everything alone. It is in the space of solitude that repression can happen. Memory is construction. We collect information from what happened at an event, attempting to remember, based on our knowledge and expectations of the world, as well as our emotional starting point, among other factors. This construction can, if you have a little imagination, transform our recollection into a rather foggy picture. But if you remember new details, you can get more pictures until, put together, they seem like a little movie. It's as if you're imagining something. For example, envision yourself standing on your head in Times Square, which I don't suppose you've done, although I'm sure you're familiar with Times Square. And if you wish, you can construct an action where you jump around on your head between the cars. This is not a stored movie. It is a construction that you've made here and now, based on a lot of details. My name is Elijah Guo. I'm a writer, actor, and producer, and I've collaborated on this podcast as a scriptwriter. I personally think this podcast is important because it's a unique platform for examining how we relate to violence by asking participants to recount a film scene, pick a fictional character, explain their choice, and engage in discourse and reflection on temporary violence. This is clearly a relevant issue in society today, and has been for some time. My name is Tina Marie Jacobson. I'm an artist and educator. I made this project in order to have a platform for sharing our different experiences and understandings of violence without having to share 
our private stories. It is my hope that by listening to each other and these interviews, with an open mind that we can come to a deeper understanding of our own dark sides and how different our sensitivities to violence can be. I encourage you to try the method for yourself. You will now hear a series of interviews where I ask young people specific questions. After the interviews, these questions will be explained in detail and with guidelines. All the direct approach participants are asked the same questions to help them recollect a film scene memory. You'll now hear a community organizer and social worker who works with LGBTQ youth. Um, I have a first question for you, which is, could you tell me a little bit about one of the most violent film scenes that you've ever seen? Which one would that be? Yes, it's uh, it's been 20 years since I've seen it, but um, it's a rape scene from Boys Don't Cry. Um, it was a movie uh, starring Hilary Swank, um, Chloe Savini, um, and I think the original Becky from Roseanne Barr was in <laughs> it. <laughs> um, otherwise, I don't remember the other um, actors, um, but the scene was uh, basically... The character um, that Hillary was playing is Brandon Tina, and he was a transgender man. Um, and uh, a group of men, or maybe two, I don't remember, um, found out that he was transgender and, um, and raped her um, uh, violently. Um, it was just a very particular scene. Um, and I... I remember bits and pieces from the movie, but not much. But that that one part laid me out. I was pretty devastated. Um, and the ending, too, where ultimately um, I remember Brandon being murdered um, and another woman. Um, and, yeah, so that was definitely... That's the first scene that comes to mind and it's been a very long time and I still it it resonates still it's yeah before I'm going into the how it resonates in you I'll just stay a little bit within the scene itself mm -hmm. uh, could you go back to it and just tell me with your own words like how how the situ the rape situation happened um, could you explain it to someone who can't see it almost Yeah, I remember it being outside, and uh, from what my memory is telling me, it was a desolate kind of rural area, um, and it it was against a car or a truck, and there were two or three men, um, and she just sounded so desperate and screaming and crying. Um, I'm sorry, he. <laughs> wow, it's just, I very much think about it being Hillary Swank in a lot of ways, and that also bothers me that it wasn't a transgender man playing Brandon Tina. Um, so I remember there being sunlight. I feel like it was during the day, um, and maybe in a southern state. I think it was in a southern state. Couldn't tell you what state. Um, I think I recall Southern accents and that's why I, 
believe that. Um, and it was the 90s, so it was like there's a lot of flannel and whether that's because it was the South or, you know, the style at the time. Um, and just, you know, like jeans, t-shirt, flannel. Um, and yeah, I, I, the men are faceless to me. But again, I think it's because Hillary Swank is such a public figure. I, I can see that face. I can recall it. Um, if I'm recalling it correctly, you know, I don't, brains plasticity. <laughs> um, but just, it was just so cruel and and just calling her names and you can, it's it was animalistic. It was very animalistic and primal um, as sexual assault typically is, you know, it's, it's nothing other than a power um, dynamic. And just seeing somebody um, being ripped apart like that um, just for being who they are, which is completely harmless. <laughs> um, and so that's really, I think that they, um, I think they raped her from behind too. I seem to remember that because I seem to remember her being pressed against the car and you could just see her face again, her <laughs> killery, geez, um, so clearly and in pain. Um, but yeah, it, that's a lot of what I recall. I'll get back to the pronoun later. Mm -hmm. um, you said something about accents. Can Do you remember, did anyone say anything? Do you remember any words spoken in the scene? Um, from... Brandon just, please don't stop, you know, those those kind of words. Um, and with the men just may, put, putting her down, um, oh, the pronouns are killing me right now, sorry. Um, really just calling him a freak. Um, and you know the i can only recall words that i typically hear associated with um uh, gay individuals or transgender individuals which is like freak you're disgusting you know words like that um what was actually said i really don't remember yeah I'm being a little bit affected by what you're saying, actually. Mm. Um, uh, it's really hard hearing you re re like re-describe a scene like this because it becomes sort of real when I hear you speak about it. Um, you said that it's animalistic violence. Could you describe a bit more what that type of violence is? It's... I really feel that it's uh, fear-based. I think that it's that kind of violence that comes from fear, um, the the not knowing, and um, and it's seated in sexism, right? Because this is about gender identity. So it's not necessarily because Brandon 
is attracted to women and they still consider him a woman, it's Brandon is challenging this this notion and this idea of what a man is, I feel like, with these men that rape her. <laughs> Sorry, the pronoun thing is really bothering me. Um, it, I think it's part of me disassociating and wanting it to just be the actress Hillary <laughs> and not Brandon because it's based on a true event. Um, but uh, that's the social worker in me talking. Um, but I do think that that violence um, is about putting another person back into that place so in the hierarchical power dynamic to have the upper hand, to keep the keep everybody in the positions that they should be because ultimately uh, white cis males are top, as we see now. They can pretty much do whatever they want and get away with it. With right now, you know, Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford, um, it it doesn't it it's resi- that that's such a parallel because it's sanctioned. It's sanctioned sexual assault still to this day. It's twenty years later from this movie being made that gets an Oscar, and it's like look how proud we are of ourselves Hollywood like addressing this very horrible thing that happened but there's no it's there's no progress it's it feels like regression right now and that sexual violence um it it when I see Kavanaugh when he was going off um at the hearing and he was getting so upset it's like that that looks like rape to me um that's what I remember those men in that scene acting like. Um, that I can do what I want and can do whatever I want. And because it's a challenge, it's a challenge to their own masculinity, it's a challenge to their own position. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to be a little bit um, factual about the scene and go back to the scene. Um, mm-hmm. For someone who hasn't seen the film, could you explain how it starts and how it ends? The whole movie? No, no, the scene. <laughs> the scene, the scene. So how did she get there to the car? Was she somewhere before or what happens right before and right after this? No, I think what I remember or what I can glean from the scene that I'm remembering is that they they put Brandon in a car and drove him somewhere to rape him. Um, in an isolated area. And then how it ends, I really don't know. Um, I can't remember if Brandon went to the police, ran to somebody's home, if they put him back in the car. That part I can't remember. Um, I I, I think I just kind of shut my thoughts off right when I hit the actual raping component of the scene and after that I, it's a it's blacked out i mean you watched it 20 years ago i so know yeah <laughs> it, i i must say that you still remember so many things also just signals how how much it affected you back then um yeah. before i go into talking about that um i'd be curious to know you said it bothered you that the role was not played by a transgender person yes can you ex- can you say a little bit more about that? I think 
we need more transgender representation all across the board, uh, not just in culture and in film, but in the political landscape, which is changing. It is changing, but... Can you explain to the listener who doesn't know what transgender is and how we should go about with pronouns? Could you could you just take a little... Sure, yeah. So transgender means that the uh, body, the sex that you're assigned at birth doesn't match what you think your identity is, what you know that you are. It's one of the one of the ways that I kind of try to explain it is if you're right-handed, use your left hand and start to write. It feels wrong. You can get by your whole life writing with your left hand, but it's never going to feel comfortable. It's never going to feel quite right. And that's just a tiny little window into what it means to feel like you're in your wrong body. Now, take that left hand and make it your entire body. Um, so it's, and there are neuroscientific uh, um, studies that do show that there is uh, components of the brain that when a person uh, is transgender and they identify as woman but were born as assigned male, um, that that those brain scans do match what they're saying that they identify with um, compared to people that are cis, which means that you identify with the gender that you were assigned at birth with. So, yeah, I mean, it's for me because I I also work with the community, with the LGBTQ plus community. It's um, something that I'm around a lot, but when people haven't even met a transgender person, it's it's really really difficult um, because uh, gender is a social construction that is very much infused into well just everything everything is gendered <laughs> um, so yeah it's it's really just um, your gender identity which is completely separate from your sexual orientation um, and people forget that too If you could have your your if you could paint the perfect society, how would you like people to to use pronouns with each other? I think that everybody should honor each other's pronouns. It's tricky, right? It's um, we have our implicit biases, we have our cognitive shortcuts, and if you are taught boy girl your whole life, it's it's something that's you know you have to unlearn it. It's easy to slip up and that's okay it's really okay but um for me personally i just kind of wish that we would fall into they them like just in general if we don't know somebody's pronouns and practice that and it's pretty easy to do it's like somebody left their wallet you can train your brain to worry it just it takes practice it takes practice but i really really wish that people would just honor each other's pronouns and ask um, introduce ourselves, you know, my name is Kelly, I take she, her, hers, um, as just common practice. I just think it's important that we talk a little bit about this also, because I think that a lot of people don't know yes. about these things that you're addressing. Um, yeah. um, so you said that, that I think that most people who know the film don't know that it's based on a real story. Could you talk a little bit about the real person behind the film? Sure. So, <clears throat> I 
because I the movie really devastated me, I have not watched it again since, and I have not really looked too much into the story that it's the person that it's based on. But um, Brandon Tina was a transgender man um, that, and this is what I remember from the movie too: is moved to a town, um, was not out as transgender. And when he was outed, that's ultimately when um, he was attacked, raped, and then eventually murdered um, by a couple of men that did find out. Um, That's really all I remember. How how was he outed? Like, can you describe how Brandon was dressed in the film? Brandon, um, past... I think that that was he he passed enough that people had made that assumption that he was male. Um, I think what happened because I remember the relationship with Chloe Savini. I don't remember the real person's name um, because uh, Chloe found out what because they fell in love and Brandon ultimately, you know, had to disclose I'm transgender and. Once that happened, I don't remember how, but the other woman that was murdered at the end, I feel like they outed Brandon and word got around, but I don't really remember. Um, so I, I do remember he just lived in life as a man um, with the the ultimate disclosure coming to pass when he... Uh, was in that relationship with the other woman. Um, and I believe that she accepted it. You know, she fell in love with Brandon, and and I remember them staying together. It was just kind of some, you know, a forbidden love movie. <laughs> and why did the film stay so deeply in you? Like, wh- why do you remember it so well? Well, um, when I saw it, It was really late at night. Um, I was either 17 or 18. I don't remember what time the of year it came out. Um, and I saw it on TV very late, and I was alone. Uh, what I remember is I, I saw Brandon, and I was like, whoa, cool. It's, like, it's a queer movie, and I was a queer kid. And so it's just, uh, you know, queer kids are hungry for that kind of media. It's just... Um, I did not know what I was about to see. I had no knowledge of what it was about. Um, and it, when it unfolded, um, and after the ending, the devastating ending with Brandon being murdered and the other woman, I remember just being laid out. I was just completely laid out. And at that time, I was very much struggling uh, with my identity. Uh, what resonated with me a lot was I was always so scared that people would attack me or assault me if I was too butch if they because I was inc- I was bullied profusely I came out at a very very young age and didn't know you know I was naive I was very naive um, and 
when I saw that movie, what it basically told me was femme it up and be invisible, be quiet. Just don't bring attention to yourself. Um, Yeah, it, it really, it was, I think it's because it was set outside of myself. It wasn't in reality where, you know, your instincts kick in and everything. It was this cinematic, like, film, this drama, the sensationalization uh, this, it, of um, the assault on the LGBTQ um, community, the community. And it, I think it really was one of the LGBTQ films that we were so used to. It was always tragedy. It was always tragedy. And it, and I, I shudder to think about all the other individuals that saw that movie and how it had that effect on them too, um, including all the other devastating, tragic LGBTQ movies that really tell you, you know, this this could happen to you too. And and then it's um, congratulated. It's at ceremonies. Hillary Swank's getting an Oscar, and you know, they're self-congratulating themselves. And it's a real person. (laughs) It's an actual individual that was raped and murdered. And that is really common in the transgender community. It's incredibly common to a degree that we don't even know because many victims are misgendered. Um, What do you mean? So, so the murder rate for the transgender community is staggering. Um, so one out of 18,000 of the general U.S. population is susceptible to murder. One out of 12 transgender individuals are susceptible to murder. And one out of eight um, women of color transgender individuals are susceptible to murder. And it's a staggering statistic, but um We don't know because a lot of times when transgender individuals are found dead, the police and forensics will just gender them themselves. They don't they don't honor if they presented, they might not have had their ID changed. And even if they did have their ID changed, I've I've heard of, you know, the the reports still being um, submitted with the gender that they decide on, you know, not the murder victim. So. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't know. We the numbers are definitely higher than that. But that's what we can glean from statistics and reports. I don't want to ask you this the third question. No. <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. So we've been talking about a film scene and um imagine that we would refilm this scene um with you in it. Mm-hmm. Who would you play? Would you play the victim the perpetrator or the bystander if there's a bystander but there wasn't right there was no bystander but i certainly felt like one when i watched it um and in many ways i it kind of turned me into a bystander to myself you know i mean i had other experiences that created that dynamic but i think that as a bystander what could I have done? I mean, it would be, I would, if I tried to stop it, I mean, all I could really do is maybe like scream and yell for help, but I wouldn't be able to overpower these men. 
Um, I think that's all I could really do would be have to try to get help. Um, definitely wouldn't want to be the perpetrator or the victim. Um, and yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I feel like just, I'd, I'd have to choose the bystander out of the dynamic. Maybe one of them was a bystander of the boys or I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if that were the case, and then maybe that would give even more power to the bystander to intervene um, or report it, actually report it um, as a bystander. Um, I don't know if it was reported. I I really have not looked into anything other than the name of the victim because it's just horrifying memory to me yeah i'm gonna be a bit tricky but if you really had to choose to play perpetrator or victim who would you choose um i mean this is uh gonna be a bit heavy but i think i would be the victim because i have been the victim and i've overcome it um I would not want to inflict that pain onto somebody, but I've been able to take what I've been through and turn it into um, positivity. It's it's a lot of what I've went through um, has influenced what I do for a living. Um, I've really I really worked hard to become the person that I needed <clears throat> when I was younger. Um, and working with LGBTQ youth, um, and a lot of it stems from the assault and the bullying and the, all the strife that came from being a part of the, being gay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if, if it had to be between the two, definitely victim. Like I would, I wouldn't even think twice. If you had been in that scene how would you have reacted? You can change the scene right now. Like, how would you? You said running away, but what can we do if we are ever in that situation, in that violent situation where somebody's assaulting us? I would hope that I could disassociate um, and not be as present as those men wanted him to be. Um, what do you mean? It's about evoking pain from another person so i would hope that i would be able to just shut off um and push through um and not give the satisfaction of them knowing just how much pain is being inflicted um i don't know i, I i'm curious as to where their minds go when when men rape it's just It's just so animalistic again, you know? It's just, are they thinking about their praise reactions? So I don't know. But I think I would, if I could revisit it, you know, and if I was in the situation that I was in, I, I would hope that I would do what I've done, which is work on healing and work towards creating as many resources and um, support for people that are incredibly susceptible to sexual violence. 
Um, yeah. So it's 20 years ago since you watched the film. Mm. What if, what if, so you were what, 16, 17? What if 16, 17 year olds now are watching films that are similarly provoking them? What we, what should we do? Yeah, it's because there are still those tragedy, you know, the um, tragic LGBTQ stories are still out there. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people, I, I know my youth, they, they rewatch things that are old because there's a lack of access or a lack of numbers of LGBTQ films or movies or culture. So what I would advise somebody that's 16, 17, teenager, whatever, um, don't watch it. Don't watch Boys Don't Cry. Um, I don't think it helps anything. I think that it sensationalizes what happened to Brandon Tina. What I think you should do is perhaps just do some research about Brandon Tina himself. What happened? What happened to... You could do this for me too because I can't still. <laughs> um, find out what happened to the people that... Um, raped him and murdered him um what was he doing what did we lose was he a musician i don't remember was he what was some of the hopes and dreams that he had what did, what did we lose is what i think is important um and yeah i think that's that's the better route to go just don't watch the movie just don't uh, <laughs> it's just rough and not necessary i think it's just not necessary um i i yeah i have a feeling that um even though there was a film that won oscars that told this story told brandon tina's story i wonder how truthful it was and also, if it brought any real justice, even though there was this Hollywood movie that highlighted this horrible thing, was there any justice received? Uh, did, did these men go to jail? Did they stay in jail? Are they on parole? I have no idea. Um, but again, given what's happening right now, you can <laughs> be in the highest uh seat in the judicial system um no matter what you do so i i just wonder um but yeah don't watch boys don't cry can you say a little bit more about what is the bystander role to you the bystander role to me um i think it was a bystander for a long time um just for the sake of survival, I I have I know people that have gone through this. I've gone through this and have kept silent um, because well, we're kind of told to be silent and we're given examples constantly to be silent because there's a backlash or you're going to be even further targeted. And what happened um, when I was a teenager was I, when I came out, I 
was constantly um, hustling, trying to get by, and um, didn't and would try to be as small and and quiet and invisible as possible, and therefore a lot of things that I witnessed and and went through were not reported. Um, and I was, and in that case, I was very much a bystander. Someone in your situation with the similar story today, what should they do? How do we like? How do they deal with it? Well, <clears throat> when I was young, um, I didn't know how to ask for help. Uh, I I still struggle with it to this day. Um, I didn't know how to ask for help because I was raised in a household where you don't you take care of yourself it was a very neglectful household and then when i was in school and i was being outwardly bullied um i would teachers wouldn't intervene you know there was no i mean a lot of teachers and i know this today still um are very homophobic and they're they're also kind of on the bullies team um But oddly, I do remember a couple of teachers that I did trust, um, one being the football coach, which is interesting. Um, he had a handlebar mustache, and not ironically, he wasn't like a hipster. He had this handlebar mustache and was just this like really, really sweet, loud, funny guy. And I did not, I was not a gym person. I, wasn't, I didn't play sports. I, I figured out ways to sleep during gym class. But this this guy really really took a liking to me, and and I think it's because he knew he knew I was going through something, something big, and sorry I'm gonna get choked up. <laughs> it's totally okay because I'm <laughs> I'm choked up all the way through. <laughs> But uh, yeah I. Do you want to have a break? No no I'll it's talk okay. about it yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I just remember. I was like, this person sees me. Like, they see that I'm going through it. But I still just did not take that extra step. I know that if I did, he would have further helped me. It's interesting because I've decided to become a social worker. <laughs> But I dodged social services so much when I was a teen. <laughs> And I'll tell you, like, I get it. Um, I know a lot of youth out there. Um, don't trust social services because it is a tough thing to navigate, but there's a lot of LGBTQ resources, um, which if we could include somehow um, in this podcast. Um, that, Definitely. Do, yeah. do you want to name some of them now? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'm in New York City, so if you're in New York City, uh, there's homeless shelters, Ali Forney Center, um, specifically for LGBTQ youth. Um, in the city, uh, our homeless youth, 40% are LGBTQ identified, which is a disproportionate number, obviously. Um, but Ali Forney is amazing. If you need a place to go, go to Ali Forney. Um, I know a lot of, I know a lot of youth run to cities from rural areas. Um, you know, I, I, really think take some ultimate steps before you do that i know the impulse i was there um i was a homeless youth and i just it was just too much um 
I mean, sometimes you have to. If your home is violent and you can't be there, leave. I mean, definitely leave. But um, there's a network that has a listing of um, LGBTQ-friendly or LGBTQ-oriented centers and resources all throughout the country. That's very easy to navigate. We could put that website up. Um, The Trevor Project, uh, look them up. If you're feeling suicidal or you just need somebody to talk to, um, call the Trevor Project. They're an LGBTQ youth um, suicide hotline. Um, They're wonderful. Uh, there's there's a myriad of resources, but the first thing is first, are you safe? Are you safe? Is your body safe? And then the next step is emotionally and mentally, are you safe? Are you sound? Are you healthy? Um, so those are the, the things that you need to check. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stigma still attached to um, mental and emotional problems and disabilities or depression. Uh, it's it's please let that go um because you deserve to be happy it's just that's like what lgbtq people are fighting for is just to be themselves and to love it's just like ridiculous but yes you know, there, there you have it but um identify a person that you know you can talk to um and speak with them and they can just be somebody to lean on you know i had the football coach that I totally didn't ask like for a lot of help, but it's just, if I did, I know that he would have helped me a lot. So take my advice. And I mean, you're, you're teenagers and you know, when you see bullshit, you can, your bullshit detector is great. I have it. I work with teens. They know, you know who to trust. You have that strong instinct. So approach that person. Otherwise, there's online resources. There's online resources. There's anonymous calls. You can text. There's there's places that you can just text and ask for help. Um, but just that's what you need to do is just to ask for help, and then the rest will unfold. Um, yeah. Could you explain just for like a wrap-up... Um in what way you are, I mean, I think you've already kind of touched upon it, but could you say what, how would you define violence and how are you violent yourself? I'm violence. I think it's a primitive acting out on shame and guilt and anger. Um, you know, there's a, the type of primal violence that's about survival, right? There's there's the fight or flight type of violence. But then there's another type of violence that's very much seated in how much we hate ourselves. Um, I think it's just manifests and you know, hurt people, hurt people. Um, I think my strongest violence is, um, so I do, I do, I mean, I openly talk about this. I have PTSD. So I have had volatile behavior that's manifested from it, but through working on myself and and being mindful, I've been able to really um, get through that and past it. 
so the violence mostly that I experience and behave in is towards myself. I think I punish myself a lot. Well, I work with um, LGBTQ, typically like high school age, and um, they're incredible. I and it, it breaks my heart when they feel so fucking hopeless. And but then I'm like, I was there. I remember that. Um, I mean, I if I'm recalling "Boys Don't Cry" from 20 years and that devastating feeling. It was like two o'clock in the morning. I watched a movie. No, it was much more than that. It was, and so they're receiving those messages. But the thing is, that's different is that they have so many things getting thrown at them. The internet, um, you know, that's a huge component of where they're receiving their bullying, um, and it's just in their face nonstop, and and they're feeling it in school. Schools are still not checking hurtful language, not checking the bullying. And I predominantly see this hopelessness with our transgender youth. They just feel like they'll never be themselves, but there are resources again, which we can list. And there are policies that um, we're fighting for and are getting passed where you can absolutely be who you are. We, there are resources out there that are accessible and and you'll achieve it. You'll achieve it. It's just the first part is asking for help. That's really the first part, yeah. One, one more question. Mm-hmm. What's the role and responsibility, kind of planted that, for the teacher? The role and responsibility for the teacher. They... Yeah. Um, They need to be more knowledgeable. I do workshops um, and presentations with adult staff in schools and tell them these resources and what policies are in place and how they're supposed to implement them and acknowledge them. So there was that one school where uh, the staff was not allowing a young transgender woman to use the bathroom that she identifies with, to use a girl's room. And we had to approach the principal and say, this is policy. This is against the law. You can't do that. Um, this one young transgender woman is amazing. She was just like, I'm not taking it. She was bold. She fought for... So she paved the way for a lot of other transgender students to kind of come out and be visible. Um, and she fought to get in the girls' volleyball team. I mean, she she really pushed and was such a rock star um but i don't like but we're in new york city if new york city isn't doing this like what's going on out there mm. you know i mean it's it's just heartbreaking um we have such a long way to go but i mean we really are fighting and the visibility of the transgender community is expanding and You know, people are like, there's more transgender people. It's like, no, they, they're just coming out finally. <laughs> you know, they're finally, finally visible. And they've been here the whole time. I know transgender individuals are coming out much later. Um, my friend, uh, she came out in her 60s and is transitioning. She's pretty much finished. And I've watched her over the course of a few years just unfurl and just like, just glow she's glowing now 
Um, so it, it's it can happen anytime too. It can happen anytime. It's never too late. But you know, I think if we have schools and teachers, right? I mean, if it's not happening at home, at least we can do it in our schools. If we're in the position of wanting to support, educate, and you know, have our youth just flourish, then we have to make sure that it's an environment that they can do that. And that includes gender identity and sexual orientation. There was a study in Canada that showed that just the existence of a GSA, a Gender Sexuality Alliance Club, in your school um, reduced the suicide rate by over 50% among heterosexual men. So just having a GSA exist in your school affects everybody, absolutely everybody, including the heterosexual men. They don't even know that there's a GSA half the time, you know, like they don't they don't know, but it's it changes. It changes the landscape of the school and what it means to have healthy relationships, what it means to be healthy with sex and who you are and your identity. Um, so if there's a teacher out there listening or a student in a school listening and there's not a GSA in your um, school, um, start one. Uh, it's policy that if a school has extracurricular activities after school um, that aren't in the curriculum, you can have a GSA. It's law. Um, I know it's hard to start one sometimes. Just start with that. If you're if you're out there listening and you're, you don't feel comfortable at home, maybe you can affect change in your school. Um, and that really helps everybody. Last question. What does GSA stand for, for the listener who doesn't know what GSA is? Right. <clears throat> so now we call them Gender Sexuality Alliance Clubs. Um, but originally, um, and some, some schools still call them Gay Straight Alliance. So they were clubs to, um, yeah, just to create that kind of safe space for LGBTQ youth and allies to come together and share resources, kind of understand more of what LGBTQ means, um, start campaigns, awareness campaigns. Um, yeah, they, they do so many different things. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any more questions. I'm just like moved and I'm kind of happy it went like somewhere else <laughs> in the end. Um, I think it's so fucking strong. Um, do you think that there's something we missed? Right. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really think that you're gonna matter for people. All the speakers were asked the same questions to help them recollect their film scenes from memory. Here are the questions, along with some guidelines on how to properly utilize them. 1. What is the most violent film scene that you've ever watched? 2. Tell me more. This may include more detailed questions, such as, How does the scene begin and end? What time of day did the scene take place? In what sort of setting did it take place? What did the perpetrator, victim, and bystander look like? How did the perpetrator, victim, and bystander move? What were they wearing? How did they look, including age, hair, eye color, etc.? What do you remember about sound effects and soundtrack? 
Do you remember any specific words spoken in the scene? What other details do you remember? What happened next? This last follow-up is particularly useful, because even if as an interviewer you think that the whole film scene has been described in ample detail, such questions may prompt the participant to remember more about the scene. By asking them what happened next, they may believe that something else happened. 3. If you had to play the victim, perpetrator, or bystander, which role would you choose? 4. Why? The participant's insertion into and interaction with their film scene is a crucial part of the direct approach practice because it allows them to engage with their memory of this act of violence in a proactive and perhaps reformative manner. It may allow them to find the inner truth, meaning, or relevance of the scene to their own life. 5. Would you act the same way if you were in that situation? This may include more detailed questions, such as, when and with whom did you watch the film scene? What made you watch the whole film scene? Would you watch it again? In what way are you violent as a person? Can you say something positive about violence? Most people answer that they are not violent in any way, but the project invites them to reflect on this. Also, to say something positive about violence is to define when you think it is okay to use violence. This is a very important question for all of us to consider and discuss the answer to. 6. Does the violence depicted reflect society today? If yes, how? If no, why not? This question is an effective way to expand their interaction with the scene into a broader worldview. However, they will arrive at this point most effectively only after having first delved into their personal relationship to the scene via the previous questions. Some guidelines for when you set up the interview are to make sure the participants do not try to depict with 100% accuracy the film scene that the interview is about, simply in order to give a better interview. Remind the speakers that the conversation is public. It can be very personal to talk about violent experiences and opinions, and participants can very easily share private stories. This project offers the film scene as a protective shield. The interviewers should never interrupt the participants. Be a patient and accepting listener. Turn the focus away from your own ego in order to concentrate your attention on the participants and their stories. Never interrupt or finish their sentence. Ask neutral questions in order not to affect their memory. For instance, instead of asking, is the car blue? Ask, what color was the car? I hope listening to this experience has been illuminating for you as you consider the role of violence in the media and society. And now, of course, I want to know, what scene would you choose? If you want to book a direct approach workshop, please email contact at direct-approach.org. Direct Approach is supported by the Danish Arts Foundation.